Well, we're jumping back into our journey through the book of Acts here this morning, which tells the story of the early church. We're looking at this story because we want to learn from their example what it is to be the church today in the year 2023 in the geographical location and culture that God has placed us. And the passage we're going to be working through is Acts 18, verses 1 through to 17. Modi just read a section of that for us, where we see the Apostle Paul ministering in the Greco-Roman city of Corinth. It's really interesting as we read through the text here, not a lot of detail really is given to us. Paul was there for a solid year and a half, and yet Luke gives us only 17 measly verses to talk about that stretch of ministry for Paul in Corinth. And he probably does so, Luke does, because he wasn't there with him. So he's just giving us a high-level, high-view look at what it was that Paul did during his time in Corinth. And one thing that seems evident, both in this text here in Acts, and as well as from Paul's letter to the church in Corinthians, he wrote two letters, first and second Corinthians. One thing that seems to be clear is that while Paul served in Corinth, at least at times, he was afraid. He was afraid. He was afraid, maybe because of the great pride and arrogance of the Corinthian people, or maybe because of their immorality, the hedonism of that city. He was afraid, perhaps, because of the Jewish people in that city and what it was that they would do to him to stop his ministry. We don't really know why it was that he was afraid. We just know that he was. That he was feeling intimidated and insecure, a little bit fearful at the potential for disaster in this city, this very secular city of Corinth, was high, and he knew it. And so for us, as we enter into this text here this morning, I want to invite you just to, just to think about your own life for a second, to do your best to put yourself in Paul's shoes. And to do that, here's a question for you to consider. Can you think of a time where you too were afraid to do what God was calling you to do? Think of a time in your life where you felt afraid to step into what it was that God was calling you to do. Maybe for you that was to have a hard conversation with a friend. Call them out on something that was going on in their life that you saw could be potentially destructive to them. And out of love, you wanted to have that hard conversation and you were afraid to do it. Or maybe you were afraid to share the good news of Jesus with your neighbor or your friend. To have a spiritual conversation with them pointing them to see the person of Jesus. Or maybe you were feeling called even to make a change in your career, to step into something different. You felt God was leading, but it made you afraid because you didn't know the financial implications of that, didn't know if it was going to work out. You were afraid to step into that. Maybe as a parent, if you, you know, try to follow God's lead to love your kids well and lead them while you felt afraid for them and for their future, and you're afraid of screwing up, making mistakes. Maybe as a spouse, you feel that way as well. I love your, your wife or your husband. Well, maybe as a leader in your workplace or in the church, you're just at times feeling overwhelmed. Like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I feel like I'm in over my head. Can you think of a time from your life where you were afraid to do something that you felt God was calling you to do? If you have, I would say congratulations. You are human. Because following Jesus is a scary thing to do, and he will call us to do things that lead us into a place of fear from time to time. Uh, a week or so ago, a number of us from our Anchor Cause committee actually met with 
uh, the leadership of the Ottawa Care Center out of Community Pentecostal Church in Orleans. And we just were able to see some of the amazing work that they're doing there, food bank there, but also a clothing store and some other, like more of a holistic ministry that they were offering there to people in their community in need. And it was just amazing, really inspiring to see what it was that God was doing through them. And as we sat with the, the leader, the, the director of the care center, her name's Marlene, and she's probably mid to late 60s, she's retired, does this as a volunteer. Uh, she talked through the entire ministry and the story and how they got to the place where, where they were. And at one point in the conversation, because there's a lot of people that they serve, like 200 families a month, it's, it's a lot of ministry, all volunteers that, that help run it. There's no staff that help run it. It's all volunteer-based, because it's a lot to take on. So we asked her at one point, you know, you're, she, was a, she was in healthcare. She has no experience in this. I said, how did you feel as you started into this ministry? Like, it must have been overwhelming. She said, yes. It was incredibly overwhelming. I thought as someone in healthcare, I might have some understanding of how to provide care for people, but I quickly realized that this was something totally different than what I was used to. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't always feel supported from people in the church. There were people who actually were kind of antagonistic towards it. Um, wasn't sure that the community would be receptive to it. I felt overwhelmed and afraid. And she said, but one morning, I woke up and I did my devotions. And I read this devotional, and the title of it was, Do It Afraid. <laughs> Do It Afraid. And she read through it, and she said, you know what? That's what courage is, right? Courage is facing your fears in the power of the Spirit and doing it afraid. If we wait till our fears are gone, we'll never do anything. Sometimes we have to step into God's call afraid. We have to do it afraid. That's what courage is, inviting the Spirit of God to use us. And it was such an inspirational thing to hear this almost 70-year-old woman who's followed Jesus her whole life talk about how she was afraid to follow God's call, but as she did, how blessed she was in doing it and how God has been using her and her team to make a tangible impact in that part of the city. But that's, in a sense, Paul in this passage, as he ministers in Corinth, He's doing it afraid. He's ministering afraid, preaching afraid to this city. And we know this because it's implied in the text, as we'll see, but also because Paul tells us so much in one of his pastoral letters that he wrote to the Corinthian church later. We're in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through to 5. He says this. He says, when I first came to you in Acts 18, the text we're looking at here today, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I'd forget everything but Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you, he says, in weakness, timid and trembling, afraid. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit, which is never a bad idea. <laughs> by the way, to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so that you would trust not in human wisdom or in someone in the gift and what, you know, how persuasive he was, but rather in the power of God. What an incredible passage. I'd love to just preach on that text here for the rest of the morning. There's so much insight in, there, uh, in that passage, so much truth in there. But Paul is clear here, isn't he? That he came to Corinth, timid and afraid he, he was trembling. He was like, I know I, I'm, I'm a good speaker. I know I can be persuasive, but I feel like I'm just not good enough. My gifts aren't 
strong enough. I can't do it in my own strength. I need to rely only on the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's how he got through facing his fears. But he was still afraid. He did it. Afraid. Now, with all that in mind, let's look at this passage in Acts 18 as we see Paul afraid in his fear ministering to this city, this city called Corinth. Acts 18 verse 1 says this, Then Paul left Athens after his speech on Mars Hill, we looked at a couple weeks ago, and he went to Corinth, which was about 80 kilometers away. Now, for context, a few things to understand about Corinth. Corinth was the capital city of the Roman colony that it was in. It was um, the third largest city, uh, one of the most important cities in all of Greece, along with Athens and Ephesus. It was a city actually that Julius Caesar had rebuilt some 100 years prior after it had been conquered and destroyed by the Romans. It was a city of great wealth, a port city that was known as a commercial center for the Greco-Roman world. It was like a shopping destination for many people in that part of the world. Like for us, maybe we would think of Toronto or New York City. That was Corinth. It was also a city of great culture. Where, for example, they hosted the world-famous Isthmian Games every other year before the Olympics, right? Where they'd have chariot races and wrestling and boxing matches and things like this. It was a big, important cultural city, a city that its people took great pride in, but not necessarily in a good way. It was a city that led people to believe that they're better than everybody else, right? Kind of like people from Toronto or New York City. I mean, I'm from Southern Ontario, so I can kind of say that. But that's what people think, the people from Toronto, right? They think they're the center of the universe and that they're the center of Canada and there's nothing else in Canada. It's kind of like how it was for the people in Corinth. One ancient writer described Corinth as a town where none but the tough could survive. None but the tough could survive. Darwin would have liked it there. The thing that Corinth was most known for, though, uh, was its immorality. Kind of like how we might think of cities like Las Vegas and Amsterdam, maybe, today. It was the sin city of the ancient Greco-Roman world with a temple to Aphrodite, Venus, the goddess of love and lust, perched on the summit of the city and a temple that had some 1,000 female sex slaves, basically, that worked there or served the temple during the day and then roamed the streets at night serving as prostitutes to the city. It was a city that was so immoral, so sexually promiscuous, that people from other cities would actually call other people who were known to be sexually promiscuous as Corinthians. They'd say, you're such a Corinthian, <laughs> as an insult. I would use some of the words we use today to describe sexually promiscuous people. I don't think I need to do that. You get the point. The word Corinthian was the word they used to insult people who were a little bit more loose sexually, we shall say. So you can imagine then why Paul might have felt a little bit afraid or timid as he ministered to this prideful and immoral city. A city that you might expect was probably not all that open or receptive to the gospel, as wealthy, prideful, and immoral cities and countries often aren't. Kind of like ours today, in a lot of ways. Paul's fear here makes sense, doesn't it? hard place to minister. Verse 2. There in Corinth, he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived 
from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Now, a couple things about Priscilla and Aquila here. This married couple who had come to Corinth from Rome after experiencing some sort of political persecution there. It's interesting, and at least half of the mentions of this couple in the New Testament, Priscilla, which was the wife's name, is written first, with Aquila's name being mentioned second, which is quite unusual in ancient literature, right? Unless uh, the wife was of a higher social standing, social status, than the husband, if they had more power and influence, which we can assume then Priscilla probably did have. She may have been the leader of that household, which again, in this patriarchal society, was very rare. This married couple, who Paul later in Romans 16 calls fellow co-workers in Christ Jesus, and who at some point apparently risked their lives to help him, they played an incredibly important role in forming the church in Corinth. We assume that Paul probably led them to Christ here as they were Jewish. He probably led them to Jesus and then discipled them. And then they, we see, actually go out and disciple others. They disciple this uh, teacher, leader in the church known as Apollos. You see that later in Acts 18. They help uh, correct his teaching a little bit. Just fantastic leaders in the early church. Probably opened their homes, hosted the church in their home. Just really wonderful people. These are some of the first and most important leaders in the church in Corinth. Verse 3 now. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. He was a tent maker. Now think about Paul here for a moment. He's come to this city, the city of Corinth, all on his own. Own, as we understand it. He's got nowhere to stay, no friends, no family with him, limited resources, right? No income, no money or very limited money, no church family at this point to support him and to give him a wage. He's got nothing. And so what does he do? He gets a job. Gets a haircut and gets a real job, right? Some of you are like, yeah, you should think about that. Well, I got the haircut part covered. Maybe not the real job part. I don't know. That's, that's up for debate. But So Paul did here. Didn't have a job, didn't have money, so he gets a job working with his hands as a tent maker. Just as Jesus, by the way, worked with his hands, right? As a carpenter or a stone mason for much of his life. So Paul did supplement his income. Which I know for some of us today, we read a passage like that. There's some theories out there in different denominations and churches that actually espouse this. Some of you might say, well, then, Jeff, if that's what Paul did, shouldn't you also maybe think about doing that? Shouldn't you, too, get a real job? Want to be like Jesus? Want to be biblical? Shouldn't you, at the very least, work, you know, um, have like a second job, a part-time job to supplement your income, be bivocational or something like this? Some people believe, actually, that that is the biblical way to go. But it's important to understand here that this tent-making thing for Paul, it was just a short season for him, at least as far as we understand it, while he was here in Corinth. Paul actually wrote elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 9, interestingly, to the church in Corinth, as well as in 1 Timothy 5, about the importance of workers in the church, like himself, being paid a fair wage as it frees them up for ministry. But at the same time, Paul here, he, he didn't need to have a wage to live into his calling, did he? He wasn't like, well, I guess I can't do what God's calling me to do because my job doesn't allow me to do it. No, he did what he had to do during the day so he could do what he was called to do on the weekends and in the evenings, right? 
He did what he had to do so he could do what he was called to do. And here's what this means, I think, for us here today. It means that your call is not limited to your job, to your career. Your call is not limited to your career. Just because you might not be in full-time ministry like I am, you don't get to preach every Sunday, you don't get to spend time on the streets with homeless people serving them full-time, you don't get to do all these sorts of things. Just because maybe your job doesn't feel like ministry doesn't mean that you can't still live into your calling. Because all of life is ministry. All of life. Whether you're a PSW, whether you work for the government, even if you're <laughs> striking right now, <laughs> you know, on the streets, striking, and you work in healthcare, whatever it is that you do, your life as a follower of Jesus is ministry. You don't have to collect a full-time wage in order to be called into ministry. That's what we see from Paul here. He's like, well, I'm called to do this, so I guess I'll tent make on the side in order to do that. What's God called you to do? I'm not asking you what your career is, how you spend your time during the day, though that is maybe part of your calling. But what's God called you to do? And what do you have to do in order to do the thing he's called you to do? Paul tent makes. Tent makes? Is that a word? He was a tent maker. Tent made. Tent made. That's what he did. I don't think that's the right either. Verse 4. Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue. When he wasn't tent making on Saturday, he'd go to the synagogue trying to convince the Jews, the Greeks, alike, as was his custom. Right? This is the way he started every city. He'd go to the synagogue and minister first to the Jews. Verse 5. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, apparently bringing some money with them, probably money that was collected from the Philippian church. We see Paul talking about that in Philippians chapter 4. They came with some cash for him, some resources for him. After they came, Paul then spent all his time preaching the word that he no longer needed to tent make. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. This was his message, right? Jesus is God in the flesh. God come down from heaven to earth to make us right with him. But when they opposed and insulted him, the Jewish people, that is, Paul shook the dust from his clothes, instead, echoing the words of the prophet Ezekiel, he says, Your blood is upon your own heads. I am innocent. Or in other words, guys, I'm not responsible here for your unbelief. I'm not responsible for your behaviors and your actions. He drew a boundary, right? Some of us need to draw boundaries with some people. We take responsibility for other people's actions when we shouldn't like our children's actions or our spouse's actions or co-workers' actions. No, Paul's like, no, I'm not responsible for your unbelief. This is on you. And then he says, from now on, I will go preach to the Gentiles, just as he did back in Acts 13 in Antioch of Pisidia. He said, all right, if you don't want to listen, Jewish friends and family, I'm going to go preach to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. It's what Paul did when they rejected him and the gospel, they moved on to the Gentiles. Verse 7 now. Then he left and went to the home of Titius Justice, the Gentile who worshipped God, and lived next door to the synagogue. Like, imagine him literally storming out of the synagogue and going to the next door neighbor and saying, All right, these guys won't listen to the temple, so I'm going to go to this Gentile guy's home and present the gospel to him and see what he does with it. 
as Paul shifts his ministry here in Corinth from the synagogue to the home, from, from the pulpit to the table, right? Sitting with people in their living rooms. They had a living room in their room, whatever their house looked like, sitting with them, sharing the gospel with them. And Titus Justus, this Gentile man, believed. Verse 8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, the bigwig of the synagogue, Jewish man, he also believed he and everyone in their household. Maybe he followed Paul out of the synagogue, one of the few who was like, actually, I, I kind of am interested in hearing what Paul has to say, and I'm going to go with him and learn more. He, too, surrendered his life to Jesus, which shows us that Paul was not done with the Jewish people. He was just going to focus his efforts, his evangelistic efforts, on the Gentile people instead. still wanted to see Jewish people come to know Jesus surrender their lives to him as Lord of their life, just as Christus, this leader of the synagogue, did. Many others in Corinth, Luke tells us, also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized too. Again, as Paul shifted his ministry from the synagogue to the home, ministering primarily now to the Gentile people. It had to be, I would imagine, incredibly encouraging to Paul. I see so many people, Gentile people, Luke tells us, surrendering their lives to Jesus in this immoral and prideful city, such hard soil that he was ministering in. He had to be ecstatic, thanking God for using him in this tough city. And yet, apparently, despite all the momentum, all the excitement, all the people that were apparently coming to Christ through Paul's ministry, Paul, for one reason or another, was afraid. He was afraid. And we know this because of what Jesus himself says to Paul in his vision, starting in verse 9. One night, the Lord Jesus spoke to Paul in a vision, and he told him, Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack and harm you. For many people in this city belong to me. Very interesting, right? Why would he be afraid after being used by God in such a great way? Why would he need this vision from Jesus to keep going, this little pep talk from, from the Lord Jesus himself? Why was Paul afraid? Well, I, I've already mentioned a couple potential reasons. At the end of the day, we don't know for sure why it was that he was afraid. Might have been afraid of what the Jewish people were going to do to him to cut his ministry short. Might have been afraid of what others in the city we're going to do to him as the gospel spread. Maybe they'd see him as the leader of a cult, and who knows what would happen then. Some have suggested that Paul might have even been depressed and anxious and discouraged, lonely, perhaps. Um, he'd been on his own. I mean, he was with Priscilla and Aquila. Silas and Timothy came. We don't know that Silas and Timothy stayed with him. He, he might be pretty much on his own here at this point. We don't know for sure, so he might have been feeling lonely. Maybe he was just so grieved and discouraged by all the sin and stuff that he was seeing go on around him in that city. We don't know why Paul was afraid. We just know that he was. And that his fear was causing him to want to shrink back and to shut up, to edit the message of Jesus, to say less, so that Whatever it was that he was afraid might happen, might not happen. And notice then what Jesus said to him. Notice Jesus' words. Right? What's the first thing he says? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Love that. Right? Hey, Paul, how's it going? 
house ministry in Corinth. I saw you led a bunch of people to Christ. Look to me. That's awesome. No, don't be afraid. This is actually the most frequently repeated command in all of the scriptures. You know that? There's some 365 different references in the scriptures, different times that in the scriptures people are commanded to not be afraid. 365 commands. One for every day. Because we need that daily reminder, don't we? We end up walking in anxiety and fear so easily. Time and time again. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Second thing Jesus says to Paul in the vision is he says, speak out. Don't be silent. Don't edit your message. Don't edit yourself. Don't shrink back. Don't don't shut up. But keep going. Speak the truth of Jesus to this city. Trust that I'm at work. And then finally Jesus says, for, for I am with you. Here's why you don't need to be afraid. And here's why you can keep going. It's because I am with you, he says to Paul, promising him that no one will attack and harm you. For many people in this city, Jesus says, belong to me. Or in other words, what Jesus says to Paul in this moment is, I got you. I got you. In the palm of my hand, you do not need to be afraid because I've got you. Some of you here today need to hear this message this morning. You can hear Jesus saying those words to you. I've got you. Don't be afraid. I'm with you, and I'm at work in ways that you don't even see and understand. We sang about that this morning, right? I'm the way maker. Even when you don't see it, I'm working. Trust me, I've got you. You don't need to be afraid. Here's what all of this shows us. We, we see time and time again, if we had more time, I'd go through examples of God saying to Joshua, do not be afraid for I'm with you. Saying it to the nation of Israel in Isaiah 41, right? I, I, I've got you. Don't be afraid. Saying it through Jesus to his disciples. Don't be afraid. Time and time again, we see this command to the people of God to not be afraid. But here's what all of this shows us. It shows us that the antidote to fear in life it's not in trying hard to not be afraid. It's not in just pushing through your fear and ignoring it. And it's certainly not in trying to control your circumstances or your situation or other people trying to manipulate things to work out the way you think that they should. And it's not even found in medicating more, whether that's self-medicating or pharmaceutical medication, though that can be helpful if you've been diagnosed with anxiety or not often that. Some of us just automatically turn to medicine to try to make things go away. It's not always the answer. Here's the antidote to our fear. It's in knowing this simple but profound life-changing truth. It's that God's got you. He's got you. And he will never leave you nor forsake you, but will be with you wherever you go. Do you know this truth today? Do you believe that? We need to be reminded of this daily, don't we? Because we forget Jesus' presence and his presence alone is the antidote to our fear in life. Especially as we, like Paul, are just striving to be faithful to him, doing our best to live in obedience to his call on our life. Paul needed that reminder, and we do too. 
from time to time, as in every day. <laughs> Verse 11 now. So Paul stayed there in Corinth for the next year and a half, teaching the word of God. Like Marlene, the care center, he did it afraid. Like, if I know Jesus is with me, I'm good. I'm just going to keep doing it. They can do whatever they want to me. They can say whatever they want about me. It doesn't matter. I'm going to be faithful to Jesus. I'm going to do it afraid that the courage is knowing that Jesus is with me. Paul committed Jesus with protection. And he would need it. That's what we see next, verses 12 through 17. But when Gallio became governor of Achaia, I said that wrong as well. Maybe don't worry. Some Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him before the governor for judgment, which Paul may have been afraid would happen one day. Verse 13, they accused Paul of persuading people to worship God that, uh, that in ways that are contrary to our law, basically accusing them of starting like a cult, a new religion. Verse 14, but just as Paul started to make his defense, Gallio turned to Paul's accusers and said, Listen, you Jews, if this were a case involving some wrongdoing or a serious crime, I would have reason to accept your case, but since it is merely a question of words and names and your Jewish law, you take care of it yourselves. I refuse, refuse to judge such matters, and he threw them out of the courtroom. In other words, guys, you figure it out. <laughs> I want nothing to do with this mess. And then, verse 17, the story ends with this. The crowd then grabbed Sosthenes to replace Crispus, who came to faith earlier, right? The leader of the synagogue here. And they beat him right there in the courtroom. But Gallio paid no attention. As this story ends, interestingly, with violence. But not violence towards Paul and the new Christians there in Corinth, as Jesus protected them from it, but violence towards Paul's Jewish accusers. And everything backfired on them instead of on Paul. You see what happened there? How God protected them, how Jesus was with them, protecting them from violence and danger. This is the story of Paul in Corinth. Paul being afraid with Jesus meeting him in his fear and encouraging him to keep going, to keep preaching, to keep being faithful, knowing that Jesus, that he is with him, that he is with Paul everywhere he Asked earlier if you could think of a time from your own life where you were afraid to do what God was calling you to do. I don't imagine it is the same kind of scenario that we see here with Paul in, in Corinth. You probably, maybe some of you have, but I don't imagine you've gone on big long mission trips for a year and a half to foreign cities to preach the gospel and so on. It might not be your story, but it's not uncommon. For us to experience fear when we know God is calling us to do something specific. But we also know that it could go sideways. It might not work out the way that we hope that it will. I mentioned earlier, maybe for you, that's fear as a parent. If you're a parent, you're called to love and lead your kids well into Christ's likeness. You're committed to doing that. But man, you don't know how it's going to go. And some days you wonder how they're going to turn out if you're doing it right. Be filled with fear and anxiety around that. Some of us might be afraid, fearful for our loved ones who don't know Jesus. We're praying that they come to know Jesus, surrender their lives to the Lordship of Christ. They haven't done that yet. We're afraid of what might or might not happen. Some of us are in 
broken relationship with family members, friends, people that we've known for a long time. We desperately want to be reconciled to them, but we're afraid of how that could go if we tried. What reconciliation might look like? What if things got worse? Some of us are afraid for our own health. We've got health concerns, health challenges, that we don't know what the future holds here health-wise. Can I do the things God's called me to do? Can I be the person God's called me to be if I also have to live with this chronic illness? You know, that's been a question in our home last number of months. Some of us are afraid as it relates to career stuff, as we talked about earlier. You, you sense that maybe God's leading you down a different path career-wise, but man, you just don't know how it's going to go. And it leads you to be afraid. There's so many ways we can and do experience fear in life. Even for us, as we get up here and talk about this anchor cause thing, and about the possibility of a food bank, even though we don't know that that's where we're going to land, but maybe it could be want to do something used by God to do something regarding food insecurity. There's tons of fear around that. Fear around finances, fear around volunteers, fear around failing. Loaded with fear. And here's the thing about fear, right? Here's the thing. There's lots of things we could say regarding fear, but one of the main reasons I would say that we experience fear in life is because we don't know the future. We just don't know what's going to happen, right? If I knew what was going to happen, I'd have more confidence to step into the future. But we don't know. We don't know how things are going to turn out. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know the future. And so some of us can't help but catastrophize <laughs> and assume the worst, take matters into our own hands to try to control and manipulate it so that things maybe go a little bit more according to my plan. And yet, without knowing the future, because none of us can, Jesus, in that space of not knowing, he invites us to trust him in our fear. And he invites us to do whatever it is he's called us to do. He's invited us to do it afraid. To take heart, to have courage, knowing that he's got this. That he's with us. And if he's in it, as he was with Paul, he'll take care of us. This doesn't mean that there won't ever be bad things that happen to us. Of course, that's not how life works. But it does mean that he'll be with us every step of the way and that we can trust him come what may. You know, if the, if the cross of Jesus doesn't tell us that, then what will? Right? Jesus, in a sense, the night before he was crucified, he was afraid. In the garden, he didn't want to go to the cross. He's like, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other thing that we could do, like, oh, I'd love to avoid being tortured and killed for the sins of the world. But not my will, yours be done. In other words, I'm going to do it afraid. I'm going to do it afraid. And through him doing it, even though he didn't really want to, God used him to bring healing and redemption and wholeness to the whole world. It's on the other side of our fear. We can trust God and walk through our fear with Him. So, I know I'm over time, way over time. Three questions, just going to throw them up on the screen for you to consider. I'm not going to take time to process them, but if you want to take a picture of the questions and journal them later or just consider them, I would encourage you to do that. First question is this Where are you experiencing fear the most in your life these days? And what is it that you're most afraid of? And why? 
What's behind the fear? What's the fear and anxiety behind the fear in your life? Where is fear and uncertainty holding you back from living into your calling in life? Where do you say, yeah, but, to God? <laughs> He's calling you to do something, and you're like, yeah, but what about paying the bills? What about this issue? What about my kids? What about my spouse? What about... Thirdly, what might do it afraid? Knowing Jesus is with you, what might that look like for you? What does trusting Jesus in your fear look like for you in this season of your life? Friends, I want to challenge you, encourage you, myself, my own heart this morning. We look at this story of Paul with these simple words. God's got you. God's got you. You might be afraid, and that's normal, human. But you can go into the future knowing that you're a follower of Jesus, that Jesus is with you everywhere you go. That even though you walk through the shadow of the valley of death, He's you know he's with you, friends, that changes everything. Gives you the confidence that you need to do it afraid. We pray for you. Jesus, uh, we thank you for this story, this example of Paul in this passage in Corinth, being afraid. Thank you for speaking to him, for meeting him. You're so gracious, so kind. That you would meet Paul in his place of fear and just to keep going, don't be afraid, I got you. And while we may not get the vision that Paul had, though that would be wonderful, <laughs> I do pray for each and every one of us here today, God, that we would hear your voice saying the same thing to us in life. I got you. Don't be afraid. Trust me. I'm with you. Speak to my friends. Speak to our hearts. This morning, as we look to be faithful to you, to not operate out of a place of fear, but to operate out of a place of love instead, knowing that perfect love has cast out all fear. Your love has cast out all fear as we look to you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.